Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime The Murder in the Woods, Part 2 In the last episode, on a summer evening in 1981, in a small Danish village in the northern part of Jutland, a 16-year-old girl went missing. Four days later, she was found in a nearby forest, hanged by a rope tied to a tree. Her body was partially covered by branches and sticks. So far, there are no clues that could indicate a potential suspect or motive. The police are still looking for the murderer. The story includes descriptions of violence and sexual assault that some listeners may find distressing. Even though the case of Kirsten's murder might soon be closed, officers are still convinced that Peter Sorensen might be the killer. They have a feeling his wife might have given him a false alibi. Then, one day, they finally get a chance to verify their suspicions. In the spring of 1983, a witness contacts the police again. It's the same person who earlier brought the officer's attention to Peter. He tells the police about Peter and Elsa's divorce. The man also says that in the summer of 1982, Peter had been showing noticeably more interest in young girls from the area. At the same time, it turns out that Peter was in a car accident in Vibor. The woman who was his passenger was seriously injured and ended up in hospital. The two criminal division officers who took part in the earlier investigation go back to the case to take a closer look at Peter. They question the man who knows Peter and his other friends, wanting to learn more about Peter's divorce and his interest in young girls. The officers are given the green light by the chief of the criminal division in Randers and start an inquiry against Peter Sorensen. They question the girls Peter was in contact with. It turns out they were the reason for his divorce. Questioning the girls yields no clues that could help solve the murder case, but another source gives the investigators some interesting information about Peter's fishing habits. The police officers go to the campsite in Gjarild Nordstrand, and since it's off-season, there are only a few tourists there. The police get lucky. As it's not the height of the season, the campsite workers have enough free time to go through the documents the officers brought. The investigators are then able to make a list of people, except for family and friends, who know Peter Sorensen. The officers also learn about his habits and fishing spot. Additionally, they ask for information about his behavior and character. Anyone who appeared at the campsite the night of the murder remembers that night and evening clearly because of the storm, and also because the entire camping area was flooded on Sunday, which is why everyone remembers that day so well. Some people even recall that Peter visited the place with his family from time to time, but no one knows anything more about his habits. Neither is anyone able to recall when exactly he left the campsite that night or when he came back. Some of his friends say that he stopped by the angling club in Randers. The club members are allowed to hire boats in Gerald Nordstrand. Peter is not the type of angler who would fish from the beach. He almost always goes fishing in a boat. The investigators also learn that he recently bought an outboard motor for a boat, which he usually keeps in the caravan. Whenever he goes fishing, he puts the motor into the boot of his car and takes it to the beach. 
Numerous witnesses confirm that when he went fishing on the night of the murder, he did not have the outboard motor with him. The investigators go to Gjarald Nordstrand to examine the fishing spot and question the attendant, who lives there with his wife. He tells the policeman that many club members were there on the night of the murder, and he remembers that well because of the weather. That evening, the members of the club from Randers and another club had a meeting. Many of them came over for the entire weekend, since the lodgings there can house plenty of guests. When the officers gain access to the list of all guests, it turns out that at least 20 of them were members of the club. During questioning, most of them say they know Peter Sorensen. They also know what car he owns, but no one recalls Peter being there with them that night. But all the witnesses remember what happened. As the weather was nice, they were all on the beach or nearby until about 9pm when it started raining and the storm began. None of the club members recall seeing any German tourists. The last witnesses are questioned on a weekend at the end of June 1983. Now the police know Peter's fishing habits, and they've learned that he probably wasn't at his fishing spot that evening, but they have no new information that could be used as evidence in any way. The details that the police have collected aren't useless, though. When put together, they reveal what kind of man Peter really is. In the meantime, Peter moved to a small village between Randers and Viborg, where he now lives with his new lover and the child from her first marriage. He found a job and the residents like him. He plays football in the local club and from time to time, he also works as a doorkeeper at the local inn. Many of his colleagues from there confessed that Peter seemed more interested in young girls from the village than making friends with other men. He had been involved in a few incidents, but they were not of a criminal nature. Peter's criminal record shows that during rape attacks, he had used violence and had tied his victims up with twine and rope. He also tried to gag them with their clothes. The police observe a pattern based on previous cases, that Peter feels a strong need to subdue his victims and gain control over them. Between 1968 and 1974, he was sentenced for four attempted rapes. During the same period, he was also sentenced for rape twice. The court ordered that he should be isolated from society for its protection, but he was released in 1979. A week before the official reopening of the case, the policemen meet with an expert from the Botany Institute and a police officer from the criminal division. Together, they search the region, looking for places where pale smartweed can be found. It's a plant that can be found near beaches and, in rare cases, also deep inland. The investigators find nothing at the campsite to indicate the plant grows there. But they manage to find pale smartweed near Peter's fishing spot. The fact that the plant is only found in that place locally is not sufficient evidence on its own, but together with the seeds found in Peter's car and on Kirsten's body, it's strong circumstantial evidence. The car that Peter used to drive in 1981 was sold long ago, but it turns out that the new owner hasn't changed the number plates or the paint. Currently, the car belongs to a family that lives near the town called Bieringbro. When the police officers visit the car owner, 
he tells them that if they had arrived a week later, the car would have been repainted. The police ask the girl they'd questioned at the beginning of the investigation to identify the car. She's the one who supposedly saw the car twice on the day of the murder as it drove past her on the road between Hüring and Erstel. After examining the car, she's almost certain it's the same vehicle she saw back then. The characteristic reddish-orange paint is the same, as is the matte. The size and shape of the car also match. The police also question Elsa's 12-year-old daughter from her first marriage, who currently lives with her father. The girl confirms that during that weekend, she was at the campsite in Gerald Nordstrand. She says that after Peter went fishing on the night of the murder, he came back to the caravan at about 9.45pm. She's confident and claims that her mother mentioned that in her presence at some point. That would mean Peter had 25 minutes more than was assumed after the first calculations. During the weekend, the police look through all their reports, including the forensics. Peter's interrogation is scheduled for the beginning of the week, and they prepare for it by reviewing his testimony and checking his criminal record. On Monday, the police officers go to the hospital in Hornslet. It's where the woman who was injured in the car accident in Viborg is being rehabilitated. The investigators want to ask her about the details of the accident and learn why she was in the car with Peter that night. The report shows they were both under the influence of alcohol. During the questioning, the woman surprises the police with some information. She accuses Peter Sorensen of raping her. He supposedly raped her in a scout hut sometime before the accident. She also says that he offered to give her a lift to Randa's and that they drank quite a lot at her house while her husband was still at home. Then, the woman went with Peter because she wanted to know where he lived. But instead of driving her to his home, he took her to the forest and raped her there. When they left the place at high speed, they had an accident. The car crashed into a tree. Afterwards, they were both transported to a hospital. Peter was discharged the same evening, but she had to stay longer because of a broken leg. The officers are relieved that the woman notified the police about the crime. They can now summon Peter for interrogation without mentioning their suspicions about Kirsten's murder, as they have a good enough reason to contact him again. But before interrogating Peter, they want to talk to someone else first. His ex-wife, Elsa. They hope that since she's not his wife any longer, and she's with another man, she might want to change her testimony. The officers bring Elsa to the police station on Monday evening and question her again. But she doesn't say anything that she didn't mention earlier. The only thing she has doubts about is the time of Peter's return to the caravan. During the first round of questioning, she had said it had been at 9.20pm, but now she confesses that she'd not looked at her watch back then and only relied on her intuition to know what time it was. The fact that both she and Peter mentioned the same time seems a little suspicious to the officers, but Elsa claims that they didn't agree upon it beforehand and insists that Peter hadn't told her what to say. They didn't speak about the murder at all. Peter only once mentioned that since he had a criminal record, the police would surely want to speak to him about the case. Elsa doesn't have anything more to say about it. In the days after the murder, 
she didn't notice anything strange in her husband's behavior. She denies having mentioned to her daughter that Peter returned to the caravan at 9.45 p.m. After questioning Elsa, the police officers drive her home, disappointed that they have no new information. They'd hoped she could give them some important clues, but they learned nothing new. Tuesday morning, the 28th of June, 1983, will be an important date for the investigation. The police officers are aware that a lot depends on that questioning and that it's all or nothing. It will show if their work can bring any results or if everything has just been a waste of time. During the meeting with the chief of the criminal division and the prosecutor's office, the two investigators are given a clear signal. It will only be possible to bring Peter to court so that a judge can issue a warrant for his arrest if they manage to convince the suspect to admit that on the day Kirsten went missing, he gave her a lift home. There's simply not enough evidence, and the charges can be leveled against him only if he pleads guilty. At 10.30 a.m., the police officers go to Peter's place. But he isn't home. He's at work. So the investigators use the afternoon to prepare for their important interrogation, which is planned for the same day. In the late afternoon, they go to Peter's place again. When he opens the door, he's still wearing his work clothes. At about 4.45pm, he is arrested. The police officers inform him that the woman who was in the accident with him as a passenger reported him, and that he's suspected of rape. He's also informed they have to take him to the police station for questioning. Peter resists, but the policemen tell him it's his duty, and in the end, he's ordered to go with them. The questioning begins soon after they arrive at the police station in Randers. The rape charge is quickly explained as Peter confesses to having sexual intercourse with the woman, but he says it wasn't rape and that it happened with mutual consent. The police officers divert the questioning towards another topic, Kirsten's case. From then on, the questioning only concerns Kirsten's murder. Peter Sorensen is told about the conversations with the witnesses, which revealed something that was contrary to what he'd said when he'd been questioned previously. But he sticks to his earlier version. The police officers don't try to hide that they have new information, but Peter doesn't want to take that chance to change his testimony. He claims there's no need for him to do so and refers to what he told the police earlier. The investigators ask him for a detailed description of the fishing spot where, according to his testimony, he was fishing that evening. It's apparent he can't even remember what he said earlier. He gets confused and mixes up contrary explanations. Then, he suddenly recalls exactly where he was and that he saw a family fishing nearby, probably Germans, who travelled in a car with German number plates. Their car was parked in the upper part of the car park. Peter stubbornly claims that is how it was. The police officers explain that the car park is not visible from the fishing spot by the sea, because it's obscured by the hillside. So, reading the number plates of a car parked there would have been impossible. Peter becomes more and more uncertain with every answer. The policemen ask if he saw any other people near his fishing spot. Peter says that except for the German family, he saw no one else at the beach or the car park. The Germans were wearing waterproof capes in bright colours, 
and he would recognize them easily since, as he adds, all Germans wear similar waterproof clothing. That's when the police officers play their first trump card. They tell Peter that in the evening, when the crime was committed, about 20 members of the Danish angling club were at the place where he supposedly was. Almost all of them knew Peter and recognized his car, but none of them saw either the car or him that evening. Peter doesn't know what to say. He just looks at the investigators in silence. But they have another ace up their sleeve. They quote the testimonies of numerous witnesses who said that Peter had left the outboard motor at the campsite that evening, which was unlike him because he usually didn't go fishing without his boat and the motor. Peter is still looking at the police officers without a word. It seems he doesn't know what to do with all the contrary information. The police officers mention the woman who saw a reddish-orange car with matte paint driving the road from Höring to Erstel, and then back again on the day the crime had been committed. Peter denies having driven that way. But it's apparent that he's slowly giving in and starting to talk. At first, he confesses that he didn't go fishing at all. He also says that he did give Kirsten a lift to Hearing in his car. Instead of going fishing, he went to the cinema in Randers. Going to the town to watch a war film had been his goal from the beginning, but he didn't dare ask for permission because he knew his wife, Elsa, would have never agreed. That's why he told her he was going fishing. At about 7pm, he left the campsite but forgot to take the boat engine with him. Then he drove to the street Grenavai, towards Randers, passing a small town called Fausing on the way, about 20 kilometers east of Randers. He stopped there near a small shop to fill his car up, but because the shop was closed, he went on his way. That's when he noticed a young girl standing on the other side of the street, Kirsten. She looked as if she was waiting for someone to stop and pick her up, so he offered her a lift. The girl agreed and got into his car. They drove along Greynavai Street, then turned into Norkestvai Road, leading to Vivild. They turned left towards Hearing and drove into the town from the east. He dropped Kirsten off at a nearby intersection and drove back to the campsite in Gjarild. In the meantime, he changed his mind and decided that he didn't want to go to the cinema anymore. Not far from the campsite, he pulled over to the right and parked the car. Then he went for a long walk to make sure his clothes were wet, since it had started raining, and he had to look as if he'd been fishing. The investigators don't believe his story, but he sticks to it. The police officers suggest a short coffee break. During that time, one of the policemen prepares a report of Peter's new testimony. After the break, they continue their questioning, but from now on, the police officers are trying to disorientate Peter. The part of his story describing how he went home after giving Kirsten a lift simply can't be true. Despite that, Peter sticks to this version, even though it's clear he's feeling insecure. Wanting to back him into a corner, the investigators reveal more facts. They tell him about the seeds they recovered from Kirsten's body and that the same type of seeds was found on the floor of his car. Furthermore, the seeds were from the same year and their shape, characteristics and scrapes on their surface were identical. 
They also explained that it was determined the same seeds could be found at his fishing spot in Gerald Nordstrand, and they were secured there. Each new piece of information the officers reveal makes Peter more nervous. The police officers also tell him there were no such seeds on the spot where Kirsten's body was found, as those plants don't grow there. So someone must have brought her to that place. Over time, more and more contradictions appear in Peter's testimony, but he still claims he's not guilty. So, it's time for the last thing the police officers can use against Peter. They remind him of all the other clues that speak against him, the fact he changed his tires, his skill in tying knots, and his earlier sentences in cases involving the use of ropes. The officers also add that several children playing in the street where he dropped Kirsten off saw her a while later, riding her bike uphill towards Terslu, while he was following her in his car. He's also told that his ex-wife Elsa's 12-year-old daughter testified that he'd returned to the caravan at 9.45pm. Peter Sorensen is under pressure from the police officers, who make him realize that his explanations, that he simply walked around so the rain would drench his clothes and then drove back to the campsite, sound false. The questioning continues, but Peter's body language starts betraying his growing anxiety. He leaves many questions unanswered, speaks less, keeps looking through the window and smokes one cigarette after another. He's also sweating a lot, and on the now rare occasion he does speak, his voice has an undertone of irritation. Silence falls over the interrogation room. The investigators sense the growing tension in the air and use it. No one says a word for about 15 minutes. It's a real battle of nerves. Eventually, someone gives in. Peter sighs, takes a deep breath, and at last says, his voice breaking, Yes, it was me. When Peter regains control of his voice, he finally explains how he took Kirsten into the woods and left her at the spot where she was later found. He says he doesn't know what happened. One minute she was alive, the next she wasn't. He admits that they did have sexual intercourse, and at some point he noticed that she was dead. Peter claims it was an accident, and that Kirsten had voluntarily gone to the forest with him. The police officers ask him for a more detailed description of what happened. Peter says that on the way to hearing, he and Kirsten agreed to meet soon and look for a quiet place where they could have sex. That's why he was supposed to drive towards Toslu and wait beside the road until she got there on her bike. When she arrived, she got into the car and they drove back towards Hearing. But by mistake, they went further to Erstel. On the way, they passed a girl on a bike, maybe the same one who later said she saw his car. When they drove through Erstel, Peter turned back and drove in the opposite direction, through Hearing and Vivil, and then went into the Loneholm Forest, where he parked near a forest road. Kirsten followed him along the path for about 75 meters. Earlier, he'd taken a rope from the back seat of his car, a line he used as a dog leash. They stopped at a clearing. Peter tied a loop at one end of the rope and asked Kirsten to get on all fours. He put the loop around her neck and tied the other end of the rope to a tree. He tells the police officers that, at first, the rope was loose, 
but it must have tightened at some point, strangling Kirsten. When he noticed that she'd fainted, he grabbed his discarded trousers and ran to the car. He drove back to the campsite as fast as he could. About a kilometre away from the campsite, he pulled to the side of the road and got out of the car. That's when he put his trousers on. Since it was raining cats and dogs, he was drenched, so when he returned to the campsite, he told Elsa that he was out fishing. He changed, drank some coffee, and then played cards with Elsa and the kids until they went to sleep. After Peter admits what he did, the very same evening, at 11.15pm, he is brought to a judge who issues a warrant for his arrest. That session lasts until about 1am. Peter Sorensen is charged with rape and murder, but he doesn't plead guilty to either crime and repeats his testimony. He stays in jail for four weeks, during which time a psychiatrist assesses his mental state. The judge is certain that during the previous questioning, Peter Sorensen didn't share everything that had happened on the tragic evening. And even though Peter still claims Kirsten went to the forest with him voluntarily, the police don't believe it. He can't explain why Kirsten's body was partially hidden by branches or why her shorts, turned inside out, were on a pile of leaves three meters away. And there are no explanations concerning the spot where her bike was found. Peter's story describing the course of events in the woods doesn't seem credible. Many theories are formed about what could really have happened between Peter and Kirsten that night, but that question remains unanswered. The trial takes place in Viborg on the 23rd and 24th of May in 1984. Peter Sorensen is charged with rape and murder. He does not plead guilty and claims that the sexual intercourse between him and Kirsten was voluntary and that her death was an accident. The jury doesn't find Peter's testimony believable and doesn't take long to make a decision. Peter gets a life sentence. But he immediately appeals to the Supreme Court. The trial in the Supreme Court begins on Monday the 17th of September 1984. The verdict is announced the same day, in the afternoon. The Supreme Court upholds the verdict of the court of the first instance and Peter is sentenced to life imprisonment. The members of Kirsten's family who are present in the courtroom breathe a sigh of relief. They are glad the sentence is just and that the murderer ends up behind bars. Finally. From Podimo, this was Cold Blood Nordic True Crime. A new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes or to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>